Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you as we prepare once again to pull back the curtain and shine a light on golf's less glamorous issues. That's precisely what we intend to do today when we pull out an old favourite topic here at Good Good and one that we actually haven't talked about in depth for a while, golf course architecture. Our guest in a moment to talk all things golf design and knowing this show, Lord knows what else, Canadian course architect Christine Fraser. Christine along shortly, but first my co-host Adrian Logue, still trapped I believe by the 10 kilometre rule in place during the Sydney lockdown, Logue. You're probably ruining the decision to be a woke inner city Chardonnay sipping lefty right about now, <laughs> given that your home course is in the suburbs and outside the 10k radius. Have you found somewhere to play golf and have you done so? Well, firstly, I object to that characterisation <laughs> of uh, <laughs> being Chardonnay. I've never touched Never tasted Chardonnay? Chardonnay? No. no. <laughs> Horrible stuff. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, no golf around me. It's it's pretty depressing, actually. Um, no, but you know, there's some little course. I might go out yeah. and play Lane Cove if anybody around Sydney yeah, knows Lane Cove. It's it's a fun little track. They're but talking it's about closing super it down. Super hard. Yeah, they are talking about closing it down. Right. So it might be last days for Lane Cove. But it's just very hard to get on any golf course in Sydney at the moment. Of it's, yeah, it's everything's packed. It's, a, it's approved exercise playing golf. So. Yeah, fantastic. Well, good luck with that. I hope that it comes together for you. Let's get on to things of more import. Now, viewed a certain way, golf is a game of tensions and opposites. For every artist like Seve, there's a scientist like Hogan, and each in their own way contributes something of value to the game. Similarly, there's those of us that think the most important and interesting thing about golf is not to do with those who play the game, but the fields upon which it is played. Many golfers claim they've got no interest in course design, and outwardly that may be true. However, in my experience, if you ask those same people whether they've got a favourite golf hole, almost without fail, the answer is yes. So what's the point of all that? Well, it's just one of the topics we're going to explore today with Canadian course architect Christine Fraser. In the About section of Christine's website, she lists among her priorities an unconventional perspective an attempt to use traditional architectural concepts to redefine golf culture, socially responsible form and function, environmental consideration, design that demands integrated shot management and decision-making processes, impact over intent. Sounds like a lot of happy, clappy marketing nonsense to me. Let's get Christine in here to explain herself. Christine Fraser, welcome. Thank you for taking some time. But hey, did it work? Sorry? I'm on, the, I'm on the pod. It must have worked somehow. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. yeah, that's exactly right. You've attracted some attention. Well, don't We've got a it. soft spot for uh, Canadian architects as well. We've had Ian Andrew and Jeff Mingay. It's just a Keith series Cutton. of Canadian architects. He, yeah, Keith, Keith Cutton. Cutton. Yeah. Riley that's Johns right. is for Stanley Thompson we had him on before. Yeah. <laughs> <Did> you, yeah. <laughs> uh, we had Ian Andrew talking about his excellent book about Stanley Thompson. Well, it was going to be my first question, in fact, Christine. What is it with uh, Canadian golf course architects? Are you quietly trying to take over the world in that nice way that Canadians have so that we don't notice? Yeah, just just using our polite characteristics to slowly integrate golf architecture. A serious question, though, Canada is one of the parts of the world. We in Australia don't understand this particularly, but there are places in the world where for about six months of the year you can't play the game at all. Does that give golfers, committed golfers in a place like Canada, a greater intensity and a greater perhaps connection with the game in a funny way? Yeah, that's a great um, observation. I think it's probably very true. Uh, we take golf seriously here in Canada, and and when you, when you don't let us play um, – it makes playing it that much more impactful and important. And so we, yeah, golf is, is a serious business around here. And perhaps that's why um, some would say underrated, or that's perhaps why the architects um, don't get as much credit 
where credit is due because uh, that's just the fact of golf in Canada. Yeah. Do you think that's changing, Christine? The names we've just reeled off there all have been, all are quite high profile now and your own profile is growing. Um, we'll talk about that coming up. Um, but do you think that's changing? Do you get a sense? It feels to me like architecture itself is becoming more prominent and discussed, more golfers have an interest. But Canada in particular, I feel like, really is at the forefront there. It is. And um, Canada's – we invest heavily in golf and, and – um, we take pride in our golf courses and our land and our coasts and our land features and the topography we have. And I think that is, that is shown and on, put on display by these architects that we've, we've had over the last few decades really stepping up and, and doing great work. And so, yes, yeah, absolutely. Just out of interest, what do you do when you can't play golf? for six months of the year. That's brutal. You, you generally just walk, watch hockey, I think. <laughs> it's kind of the same game, really, isn't it? Stick, fuck, <laughs> get on with it. You know, minus a bit of bit of sweating and perspiring and fighting, it's all, uh, it's all <laughs> sort of about the same. Now, Christine, the elephant in the room, you're a woman, of course. Now, I don't want to make the show about you being a woman architect, but I imagine you've had a different journey to most of your male counterparts. So starting all the way back with just having a an interest in golf course mm. design. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I had a quite an uh, perhaps a unique foray into golf um, as as a sport. My my mother, um, her family built a golf course in the seventies. Her parents bought a piece of land, an old agricultural field, and they literally designed and built a golf course, and it's still in operation today. And it's run by the family, so. I've kind of always been around golf. I've always been interested in golf. I've always been playing golf. So um, it never it never really was, you know, not part of my life. Um, and so to say to say I'm different because I'm a woman is is in fact true. But also I've never really considered how being a woman has attracted me or deterred me from getting into the profession or pursuing a competitive career in golf or or anything of that nature. You played college golf, I think? Yeah. I did, yeah. I played Division One down in Florida for four years and got quite good at it, but not good enough to keep playing, which was how I decided to pursue a different um, outlook into the into into golf and I I wanted to stick in the industry, mm-hmm. um, and that's how I found golf architecture. It's funny in a way, isn't it, Christine? There's two ways that can go. When somebody who's good enough at golf to be an elite amateur, not quite good enough to be a touring professional. I mean, that's the worst place in golf to be, I think. it's You can be quite happy being an 18 marker for your whole life, but to be that plus three, plus four, plus five player who isn't quite good enough to turn pro, two things happen with those people. Either they walk away from the game completely – or they do what you've done and find another area of the game to immerse themselves in. Tell us about that decision. Was walking away completely ever an option? It, it absolutely was. I When I, I played my last tournament round in college, um, I, I didn't pick up my golf clubs again for probably five years. I just uh, got quite burnt out from the sport. Um, very appreciative for, for where it had gotten me and what I've learned and the places I was able to travel and the golf courses I was able to see, but I really wasn't interested in playing golf, frankly, ever again. Um, but I had such a connection to, to, to the community and the establishment of golf that I knew that golf was going to remain a part of my life, just not 
just not in the playing. I'll let you in it. Let you in in a moment, Logue, but I've still got some more stuff that I want to sort of explore here. Where does the golf course architecture then fit in with that from the playing to then the course architecture? Those who've got a background of playing, we often heap derision on them in the course design world because they're two different things. Did you used to be the golfer that thought that golf was about the players and are you now more in the camp that thinks golf's at least as much about the playing fields? Uh, I, I'm not sure I was ever of the former. Um, I, I, I have very much appreciation for the, those people who do and for the people who play golf and play it well. But I was really always interested in kind of um, what was under the grass and, and, and in the function and the form and the flow of a golf course was much more interesting to me than actually playing golf. Um, I just happened to be good enough for it to pay for my college education. So I, I, I took, took it up. Um, but yeah, architecture was always, was always in the back of my mind. And, and like I, like I said before, my grandfather who had no prior experience with, with playing golf, let alone designing a golf course ended up doing that. And I think that's what was always the most interesting thing to me is how someone could design a golf course and have it be somewhat successful. Um, and so that's what I wanted to pursue. That's a bizarre decision on your grandfather's part. How did that come about? Somebody with, with no background. I can't imagine there's many non-golfers out there sitting down there at the moment thinking, you know what I'll do next week? I'll go get myself a piece of land and build a golf course. That's what I'm going to do. If Let's I had a piece yeah. of land, I wouldn't be able to stop thinking about it. No, though. no, no, so but you're a golfer. It, maybe that's how it started. Did, <laughs> did you just have a piece of land? and. <laughs> you know, he just had like three teenage kids who we got to put to work, um, a very supportive partner, and a desire to have um, a career that allowed him to work for eight months of the year and take four months off. <laughs> Why not become a teacher? Anyway, that's... <laughs> That's a whole different. It's funny, you know. I, I think when you talk about that, Richard Sattler at Barnbugle Dunes, no interest in the game, and still to this day, little interest in the game. He occasionally goes out and plays. He had a period there where he was quite interested in it. And uh, Oakmont, of course, was built by uh, Henry Phones, who was just an amateur golfer, not a designer in any way, shape, or form. Some of the really interesting stuff has come from people from outside the game, which leads us neatly to one of the things that we want to talk about: golf culture. You mention it quite often on your website. What do you mean by golf culture? Yeah, I think I have um, um, I have a, quite a tumultuous relationship with golf culture and, and what the traditional golfer looks like or, um, or how they interact with golf as a sport and the expectations that golf has of, of who you are, what you need to be to be able to be part of this establishment. Um, and I, and I struggle with that a lot of, of not necessarily golf being um, the love that I have for the game being reciprocated back to me as, as a woman, as a young woman. Uh, so, so golf culture is something that I feel like I can have an impact on and, and, and through, through my lane of architecture, perhaps I can have some kind of influence over what golf culture could look like and could could turn into going forward. Like golf culture, what, what is it? it it's what have we, we done? discuss a lot here <laughs> about what non-golfers perceive golf to be about, and uh, it, it's it's something that needs addressing. I think because in golf we're in a little bit of a bubble, and we um, 
we talk to ourselves about it a lot, but none of it cuts through, I think, to non-golfers. And the perception of most golfers about golf is uh, pretty skewed towards certain factors like conditioning and things, which, which don't necessarily project a great image out into the greater world. Um, and uh, look, one of the things that really uh, interested us in getting you on, Christine, was that video you did walking through the city with some fellas going to play a game of golf at a, like a, uh, it looked like that course is in the middle of the city. I, I don't know. <laughs> in Toronto, there was a, a public golf course in Toronto, pretty short course, but you're all just walking through the city with a small number of clubs over your shoulder. And, uh, you know, you, you just don't see golf out and about in the city like that. And uh, shame, uh, that's something I, I wish we could see more of. But mm. is, is that part of the sort of culture that golf needs to embrace, do you think? I think so. And that project was really interesting and quite impactful for me in my experience of what golf could be and my expectations of golf going forward of of how we can make golf more inclusive and accessible. And um, we started off shooting that in the city centre of Toronto and we took the subway with our clubs, with our um, bags directly to the golf course which the pro shop was in the subway station. So we got off on the subway and we're right at the course and it's, you know, 15 minute subway ride from this the absolute center of Toronto. So, so the potential of that kind of culture infusion um, is really important. And I think, you know, we always talk about how golf is sort of this, this mirror to the bigger socioeconomic picture that we live in and and a lot of the times it doesn't actually cross over so i'm always looking for small ways to to have better integration of what's important in society um to really flow into the foundations of what is important in golf and that's not always the case very much not always the case. It's a very long way from Augusta National to a pro shop in a subway station, isn't it? That must yeah, be, absolutely. That, must be, that was the – of all the things in that video, and it was fantastic, and, of course, as Adrian will point out, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, won't we, Adrian? Well, it must be already there. I don't yeah, know. you can look it up. You can look it up for me while we're chatting with Christine. That's the thing I think that stuck with me. That's extraordinarily powerful. That must be unique. I can't think of another golf course in the world where that would be the case. You get off the train and you're at the golf course and you can pay for your round – in the show. If we could integrate more of that kind of thinking into golf, or had we been able to for the last few hundred years, we wouldn't be where we are today with golf, we'll be where, the, where its image amongst non-golfers is so poor, makes the game such an easy target, that the parts of the game that really we can't afford to lose, public golf, municipal golf, they're the targets. The fancy clubs are never going to disappear. They've got the money, but we don't do ourselves any favours, do we, with what we project how do we start to bring people who don't play golf and help them to understand and educate people about why golf isn't just a waste of space and resources for the privileged few yeah and that's the pursuit how do we bridge that gap between the best parts of golf and 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 giving that to non-golfers through invitation and through recruitment and turning that into retention it's it's a really hard hard question it's a huge a very complex idea um the way i approach it is is through is through architecture and how different forms of architecture affect different different players and how we can use um 
very well established and old architectural techniques to make the game more pleasurable, enjoyable, challenging to all you know, the greatest number of golfers possible. This idea of equity is is always the pursuit, um, and it's, it's certainly not easy. Not always the pursuit, Christine. There's a whole gaggle of people in golf who feel that that's exactly not the what we should pursue. We have high-profile people, and Brandel Chambly comes to mind, promoting the notion that professional golf must have long rough to test the game's players. That doesn't send a great message, does it? We had a great discussion with Pat Jones last week about the optics of Torrey Pines. If you don't play golf and you look at the US Open at Torrey Pines, that's a shocking... If you've got a marketing company to market golf, they would take that image, throw it out and say, what have you got that actually looks reasonable and feasible? But ironically, golfers think, think that it's fantastic. one of the most amazing looking places they've ever seen. Mm. But it, it, I, I think the more subtle point is it's just as a public golf course hosting the the governing bodies showcase event yeah. it was the wrong look for that mix of things yeah, yeah indeed the course there that's I've, I've forgotten the name of it that you shot the video what was it called in uh, dentonia park dentonia park what's the mix of people there who did you see there when you went there did you see the same group of people that you would see at augusta national just with less money or something it's it's it is it is the one experience I've had where the golf course clientele actually was representative of the demographics of the city. Um, there was a group of, of uh, senior women. There was a father and two daughters. There were, um, you know, club professionals who had covered up the logo of their private clubs in their bag who had just gone out for a, a quick $30 round with no expectations. Um, you know, like, an astounding um, just spectrum of every kind of person of color you could imagine. Um, and and that, that kind of was also displayed in the staff at the golf course that I saw as well. So it was really like a top to bottom kind of uh, exercise in, in, in diversity. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a testament to, the location of the golf course, the price of the green fee, the length of the holes, the the land usage that's there, all of these things combined created a really unique microcosm of golfers that I just really haven't seen anywhere else. Mm. Something that struck me about the sorry, Rod, something you- that struck me about the video was what an alternate reality of golf could have been like if we had didn't have the fourteen club rule. Like the um, the if if golf had decided long ago to have less than ten clubs, say, uh, then would we be seeing golf all the time in smaller places where people could ride the subway with you know their golf clubs over their shoulder, just like people carry their yoga mat around? You know, you'd have this much slimmer thing that's like just it's hooked over your shoulder, like a with your, like a quiver of arrows or something like that. You just need a lot less equipment to play golf. Golf could have looked incredibly different, but instead, I, I feel like the number of clubs dictates that we have these big bags. Yeah. Dictates that you've got to drive to golf, which dictates that you've then got to you know have a buggy or a pull cart or a or a driving cart, which dictates you've got to play on a big playing field with roads and all sorts of infrastructure, and it just gets super expensive and it puts it behind fences and things. 
uh, the whole thing spirals out of control and there was this sort of alternate reality aspect to watching you guys walking through town with with a small set of clubs over your shoulder i think one of your playing partners brought along shoes couldn't help like, <laughs> carrying, <laughs> Ru- carrying gold shoes along, yeah. which i was very disappointed <laughs> in like shame on him um but <laughs> other than that like it would just be great if you could just walk off the street and play golf yeah absolutely you have your your sunday bag over your shoulder on your bike to work and then on the way home after work you stop at the local muni for nine holes you leave your woods behind you need a putter a seven iron a wedge you're good to go christine you would have played golf all over the world you'd have played some amazing golf courses during your college career and no doubt as a course designer you've walked and played and seen been a part of lots of the world's most revered courses that we love to talk about when we talk about architecture any of them more fun than the day at dentonia park no Without question, no. That was the funnest day I've had on a golf course in a very long time. As golfers, you can hear the intake of breath there amongst the listeners thinking, what? How could it possibly be the case? (laughs) We focus on the wrong things so often in golf, don't we? We forget, in fact, that the most important F word in golf and the least used is actually fun. And we use the other one freely and understandably. It's perfectly acceptable because the game can drive you mad. But that's what seems to me. And I think that plunks directly into what Adrian's talking about there. And I do think it's underrated. If that decision, I think it was 1920-something, Bobby Jones is a part of it, of restricting the number of clubs to 14, if only they'd said eight. Mm-hmm. It, just that that one little point in history could have changed everything, Christine. Small golf becomes a very feasible thing if eight clubs is the limit, doesn't it? The, the sort of golf you have at Dentonia Park. That's a great example. Winter Park is a great example. And our own Oakley Golf Club down here in Melbourne where Sandy Jamison is doing amazing things, I think are great examples. How do we create more examples, Christine, of what this can be? And more importantly, who is it more important to expose to these experiences, non-golfers or golfers? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know one is more important than the other, uh, but I think, Adrian, just like the the notion that you brought up earlier of the eight club or the 10 club, I think that's so interesting. And and to imagine how different golf could look Mm. like if that one rule was modified is so interesting. And I think it's going to become more of more of um, a necessity rather than a choice going forward when, you know, all of a sudden the municipalities don't allow us to to buy water off of them and land prices go up and all of these things are going to be important to the generation next and next. Um, are they just going to become, you know, a binding rule rather than a choice? Um, and so I think to your question, Rod, I think it, you know, really opened up my eyes playing D'Antonia park. The golf course itself was there's, you know, there's nothing extraordinary about it other than the environment and the community that it created for me and the experience that it created for me. So I think um, to be able to offer that up to golfers that exist, that we already have, would be very powerful um, in terms of perhaps recreating this culture that we were talking about of what golf actually is and what actually is important about golf and what we like about golf could be very, very powerful. We get obsessed with golf, don't we, Like We start to play and we start to get obsessed with golf and stuff that's actually – that we do – I think all of us go through this and maybe some come out the other side, but that looking down notion that you brought up on the podcast maybe a couple of years ago now, we all have that phase where we look down at the ball and at our score and at yep. the lie and they're the things technique that are important. And yeah. Just, yeah, technique and 
like the, your judgment of whether you've enjoyed a day is all based on how you hit it or what your score was, as opposed to the looking up and just appreciating the surroundings. And you know, it, golf is a sport. Like if if golf didn't exist, someone would invent it mm. because it's yeah. one of the most primal things ever, isn't it? Just you know, taking a stick and hitting a rock. And uh, Andrew Thompson on the podcast mentioned that. And walking around a park, walking around a beautiful um, piece of coastal land or something like it's that's just somebody something somebody would invent the day after golf got abolished, just get reinvented. <laughs> reinvented. Um, yes. It's a great notion. But, I love it. But that picking up a stick and hitting a rock, I think, again, gets back to a small number of clubs. Like again, it's one of the great uh, follies that new golfers think that they've got to buy a full set of clubs because look, I'm hopeless, so. Um, I need all the help I can get. If you take clubs away from me, that's making it harder for me. But the the irony is, of course, that they hit the ball so poorly that they're not hitting shots in 10-yard increments or anything like that. So they actually should have less clubs and and hit clubs that they're confident of hitting um, or get comfortable with a few clubs. Um, And golf would be cheaper to get into then. But there's this, again, a, a way that we project golf out externally is that you've got to make this expenditure like three thousand dollars to get into golf to buy a decent set of clubs even at the kids level these days used to be christina you were probably the same as a kid you you never had a full set of clubs you had a half set and in fact quite often the incentive that might be offered for your improvements when you get to this handicap we can buy you another iron to add to the set so it won't just be three five seven nine and putter then you can get a sandwich and then you can get a four iron or whatever it might be it's a totally different sort of and there's an entire industry has grown up around creating those what are essentially myths Uh, if you weren't a goal in fact even as a golfer Anybody here considered a new set of clubs in the last few years? It's a brutal experience to think, mm, what should I get? It's just you're overwhelmed with what's out there and available. I can't imagine being a beginner golfer and having to try and engage with that. Christine, you said something really interesting about uh, earlier about you know there's these pressures that are growing on golf, and we're feeling it here in Australia. I know you're feeling it there in Canada. Councils and local governments wanting to take away golf courses and repurpose them for other things, be it residential, be it parkland, whatever it might be. And that's an interesting discussion. As that continues to unfold, those pressures are not going to get any less. Anybody out there who thinks this problem's going to go away or that more parks being saved, don't kid yourself. <laughs> this is going to be an ongoing issue for golf. What that's going to require as change comes along is innovative thinkers from within golf and particularly within the course architecture field to create the golf venues of the future. So that puts you squarely in the hot seat. We put the burden of golf's future past and present on Jeff Mengay when we had him on the show and I know he's a friend of yours and that you work with him. What's the role of the course architect as we go into this future and are we thinking about some of these things the wrong way? Should we be embracing the notion that golf can change in that public urban environment and not lose anything by doing so? Well, I have to be optimistic that um, golf will change for for its own um, sustainability, sustainability in terms of participation rates and interest of people actually wanting to play golf. Um, and I think I find my place in golf course architecture of being able to offer a different perspective and being able to look at how we can make golf smaller. Um, and, and that, that doesn't mean making it less interesting 
or making it less challenging, um, but making it smaller, making the footprint smaller, making the expectations smaller, making the rules smaller, um, making the, the literal physicality, the land usage, the fertilizer, the maintenance regime, the budgets, everything smaller. And to do that um, at the same time of, of retaining the things that we love about golf, the, the architecture, the challenge, the vistas, uh, that's, that's my challenge going forward. That's the challenge that I've chosen to undertake. And, and I think that will, will allow golf to have some social relevance and some longevity going forward. How different is the thinking required to achieve some of those things to what we may have, be, have traditionally thought of golf course architecture as you're encompassing a whole bunch of stuff that's got nothing to do with whether a par three should have a reverse redan green or not completely outside of that or you know in many ways nothing to do with that the things mm -hmm. that you're talking about is that the role of architects or is the role of architects to put the humps and hollows in the right places and make the bunkers interesting for all levels of players um i think in uh, for me personally i think it's the former i i think i can be a great architect but i think my role is is bigger than the humps and the, and the hollows it's a, it has to be the bigger picture um but uh, but i can say that because i think if i were given the chance i would put the humps and bumps and hollows in the right places and i think you know you have to have good architecture to make the, the course appealing so it's both it kind of strikes me about coffee too, Christine. It doesn't cost any more to make good coffee versus bad coffee, does it? But yet some You're people right. continue to churn out bad coffee. It doesn't cost any more to have good architecture than bad architecture. You use the same tools at the same amount of time. So let's try and do that. What's the importance of architecture and, and, and the golf specifics of it, the humps and the hollows and the bunkers? What role does that play in the future of the game? Are courses that are generally better designed and more interesting to play important to the future health of the game? Or is there a cohort of golfers who not only say they don't care about that, but generally don't care about it and it'll have no impact on whether they play more or less or enjoy the game more or less? I think there's a lot of components to that question. There's the, there's the element of... Um of, of how we marginalize golfers. We marginalize juniors and seniors and women and people who play, you know, can't get it in the air consistently and, and really, really rely on the ground game. And, and architecture is a really easy way to isolate those people um, really quickly. So I think you have to be aware of that and the role that architecture plays in, in um, you know, the impact, regardless of the intention, the impact of, of how architecture uh, engages with with slower sp swing speeds and the impact you know long rough can have on higher handicaps and also um, and I and I also want to say that you can I think you can consider these these people without impacting you know the tips the back of the back the people who are playing the back tees um, the experienced golfers, the people who do play the air game, I think it's a completely separate issue. And, and the idea that considerate architecture is taking away from the challenge or the enjoyment of the better players is, is really not true or doesn't have to be true. One of, I'm not sure if you, have you been to Australia, Christine? Oh, never. No, you must come. We've got you down at the to. moment, but we'll let you come down. <laughs> One day you'll get to walk at Royal Melbourne, which I think is the greatest ad for golf, certainly that I've ever seen myself. And the reason it's such a great ad for golf, 
hat tip to Mike Clayton, as always. So he says, it's the easiest course in the world to shoot 75 and the hardest course in the world to shoot 65 for a good player. But to me, the great thing about Royal Melbourne is, and if you think of all the holes, and I can see Logue going through it in his mind, you could play that golf course literally with a seven iron and a putter. There is no carry required at any point greater than a slow swing speed player can carry a seven iron. You could play the entire golf course with a seven iron and a putter. And in fact, if you're moderately smart, you could probably play somewhere near your handicap if you're anywhere between 12 and 18 with a seven iron and a putter. And that is one of the great golf courses of the world. And that's, they're the aspects of that course that people miss, I feel like. This notion that, you know, I think you've pointed to it, there are in fact two different games of golf, aren't there? There's an aerial game and a ground game. Some people have no option but a ground game. But we focus almost entirely on the aerial game, don't we? That's it. Indeed. Yeah, and to me, the, the same ground... could be. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Adrian. Well, the same could be said of you know the old course. You yeah, know, absolutely. You don't and need a lot of clubs to get around the old course. Augusta National, it, except for two holes. It has that same equation. Yeah, with uh, it, it's hard to go low. It's not hard to shoot in the seventies for a, you know an average golfer. Um, but it, it all starts with the greens, doesn't it? Um, you, you come back from the greens. There's there are challenges there about where you land the ball and where it ends up. Um, but there's also the opportunity to, you know, to enter the greens from the front. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that golf has lost its way when it went from coastal uh, coastal scenes where the turf conditions were such that you could, you could have this ground game into inland and parkland settings where agronomy started to take, take a role and, um, you know, it sort of dictates this aerial game and therefore just surrounding greens with hazards what what can we do as like uh, what can architects do to uh change that perception about golf in different environments but still be true to the environment that mm. you're putting a course down in yeah that's um it's really interesting it's it's it does start from the soil and work its way up if you have really well drained sandy sandy soil you can put humps and bumps anywhere you want it's going to drain you don't have to worry about it the the biggest thing an architect thinks about in terms of the functionality of golf course is where the water is going um and and that does restrict your design uh intentions a lot um but i think there are ways to to use to employ strategy and employ, you know, shop management and employ the ground game quite authentically to the to the to whatever property you're on by just simply evaluating the the, the mowing lines, the mowing patterns, where the rough comes in compared to the fairway, the the widths of the approaches, how firm the ground is. Um, all of these things will have a positive or negative effect on the ground game um, to make it more strategic and more enjoyable for people who can't get it in the air and and that and i i just generally think that that is a more interesting game that requires a lot more skill we just watched the open at royal st george's didn't we and that is always the great interest of the open championship the courses for the most part demand that you land the ball in one place to get it to another the final target is very rarely your initial target and that's what makes the game interesting it's what ernie Ells pointed out at the president's cup in royal melbourne you almost never aim at the flag. It's always your intention to end up there, but you almost never aim at it, <clears throat> aim at it because the, the ball's going to get there a different way. Raises an interesting question, Christine. Does golf belong everywhere where it currently is? Or do uh, we as golfers just think golf courses 
can and should be built everywhere because they have been built everywhere. Yeah, I think golf. Uh, we're, we we're a pretty entitled bunch, and we do imagine golf should be everywhere. But I don't think that's true. I think um, we need to be a bit more strategic about where we're putting golf courses going forward. Um, just in terms of the the impact that's uh, that's going to have on on the land, and also um, the types of golf courses that we think are appropriate going forward. You know, maybe it's, it's a 12 hole instead of an 18, maybe it's a, a bunkerless course, maybe it's a course without irrigated fairways. Um, so no, I don't think golf belongs everywhere. Yeah. All of the Do you have any desert up in uh, Canada? <laughs> a winter deserts, I think. Yeah, Ice desert. Kind of any, yeah, that's right. No, yeah, no desert courses. I'm looking at your list of it's- services on your website, Christine. Sorry, Mike. Let's run through this list and how you can impact this stuff. Design for women and girls. Now, I imagine this is somewhat contentious. Is this? Are you just cashing in on the marketing of being a woman? Or is there, in fact, things we don't think about as men and the predominant designers of golf courses have always been men that will impact women and girls specifically? Well, I've yet to cash in on it, so I'm not sure it's working. But um, <laughs> I think there's, there certainly are uh, very specific perspectives that women have that men don't necessarily... Um, have to consider, um, you know, ask a woman, ask any woman that you know who plays golf, how 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 often they look for a bathroom and it's not there, or or um, how often they get stuck in the rough because they can't carry their drive to the fairway. Uh, these things have no impact on male golfers or, you know, better golfers in any way, but it's just not something that we need to think about all the time. So we don't, it's easier not to. So I think, yes, is the answer. I, I, I think architecture can have a direct impact on specifically women and girls in golf. So it's, it's non-deliberate exclusion, but exclusion all the same, isn't it? There's no malice to that. It's just a complete lack of thought. And we talk about this a lot of the time. How you can't see problems that you don't experience yourself. They just don't come into your vision and that's an interesting one disability accessibility and adaptive consideration Mm -hmm. what does that mean yeah it means how can we make golf more playable for a longer amount of time for people with accessibility needs or people with injuries or um you know how often are we going up and down stairs on the golf course into bunkers onto tees is that is that accessible? Is there another way that we can allow people to access tees um, that are functional and direct without slowing down play that is more conducive to everyone? Um, the use of cart passes, this is kind of a contentious issue, but the use of cart passes is often quite important for seniors or people with disabilities to get around the golf course um, because they often don't have a choice but to use a cart. So, um, is there opportunity for us to to strategically use cart pass to allow people to get around the golf course and have an enjoyable around a golf? So uh, it's, it's just, again, it's, it's things that you don't think about if they're not in front of you or if you haven't experienced it. If you were so, a building architect, Christine, these would be mandatory things to think about, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would, absolutely. Why yeah, they'd, be, they they'd be enshrined in law, most likely. I don't think you can build a building these days that's not wheelchair accessible. Mm. We just don't allow people to do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, the clubhouses are all set up for that. Why isn't the golf course? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you can come and spend your money in the clubhouse, but forget about going on the golf course. Designed to – oh, by the way, Logue's a cart – he's a path exclusionist. Paths are his specialty. (laughs) So he's excluding – as soon as you've got a concrete cart path, he's out. Yeah. Yeah, it's contentious for sure. Yeah, Uh, You've got to – I think, again – 
when we, we covered this last <laughs> week, but terms and conditions have paths in some high traffic areas. But yeah. um, I'm a big one in like treating the ground as already broken and like don't try and like maintain it somehow. Just like get some crushed rock or something in there that requires minimal maintenance. Concrete's expensive to put yeah. in and to maintain and Absolutely. repair cracks and everything. But it's all because you want to end up with the, with an aesthetic. It doesn't necessarily perform as as well. It performs better than crushed rock, I guess. But is it a, an appreciable difference? Like, I my big thing is treat the ground as already broken if it's a high traffic area. And most people right. don't know this, yeah. Christine. Logue superannuation money is all tied up in a crushed rock company. <laughs> so there's a very real agenda. Sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, I'm I'm not necessarily speaking to concrete or asphalt or anything. You know, Sounded like you were in the pocket of big concrete there for a minute. <laughs> in 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 particular, but I am saying, you know, if if you know we've had a lot of rain and we're not letting carts out, maybe we do reconsider the rule for for people who, who need the use of carts. And we have design that allows for um, a bit more high, a bit more cart traffic so that we, we don't say no to people who want to play golf. Recruitment and retention of new and next generation players. Uh, well, sorry, designed to encourage long-term participation of more senior players. I think that, that, that t- speaks to that as well. Recruitment and retention of new and next generation golfers. This is where I think we see the tensions where, generations bump up against each other in golf as they do elsewhere what do you mean by de- recruitment and retention of new and next generation golfers i uh, you know there's no i don't have an answer to this but it's just a it's an exercise in thinking about what is going to be important for my children and their children going forward and and what golf looks like to them and how how we engage with this idea of exclusive memberships and and how we reconcile our water usage um, and so thinking, just having a for, this idea of forward thinking of what is actually going to be important to these people who are 50 years younger than us. Um, and I don't know exactly what that looks like. And I don't know if it's a you know, specific width of a fairway or you know, a specific yardage or par, but I think it's something to consider. Um, yeah. It's unquestionably definitely going to be. I was going to say it's unquestionably waters at the top of that mm. list. Mm. You would think, yeah, um, and that perhaps that comes with some kind of educational platform or system where we, you know, we we talk about how great firm and dry and brown golf courses can be and how exciting that type of play is. Not, not enough. It's interesting the less inputs you you have sometimes. That there's this form of golf I'm intrigued with, park golf they have in Japan where there's a specialised club you use for it. It looks like a three-wood or something, but it's got like a putter shaft, and that's the only piece of equipment you have, and the ball is much bigger. Much bigger, like a tennis ball size, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. and they, it's played in parks. There's very minimal inputs. Like the hole is more or less just cut. Or the green is just the park grass um, mown shorter with a hole in the middle of it. And there's no hazards to carry. The game's played mostly on the ground. But that's enabled by the fact that it's kind of maintained like a park as well, where there's not sprinklers going all the time. It keeps the ground firm. The, the fairways sort of shape themselves from the line of charm that people walk along. So it, um, it, it's a, it looks like a great form of golf, and you get all sorts of people playing it. It's, it's very friendly to people of all ages, and there's nothing, there's no bunkers to step in and out of and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I love that. 
sounds innovative, Logue. How's, how's that going to fly in golf, Christine? Innovation's not something we're keen on, is it? Unless it's a new driver that'll hit it five yards further. All no, of innovation is kind of frowned upon, isn't it? it? Yeah, exactly. Unless we can buy it, we're not so keen on it. Oh, God. You're depressing me now. <laughs> uh, water management design we've talked about. Drought-tolerant plantings and species. I feel as though one of the biggest impacts golf can have and one of the best ads it can create for itself and one of the ways that golf in cities in particular can future-proof itself is right here. And we never think about it in golf, do we? What we do away from the playing surfaces that can benefit the community well beyond the golf course, is that becoming more uh do people think about that more in your profession do you think we had kate torgensen on this program some months ago with harley cruz and she specializes in going to golf courses and advising them of ways to regenerate you know valuable habitat wildlife habitat and plantings away from the playing areas talk a little bit about that and what how important that could be in the long term because if that also gives golf something to sell you can say to people hey listen it's not just golf here we're doing a bunch of stuff that does a bunch of stuff outside of just golf to be helpful well, that's it. And it, it's kind of full circle of what's going to be important in, in future generations. And if um, environmental stewardship is one of those ideals, then golf as we know it, or, you know, the Augusta type playing surfaces are not going to be, you know, relevant. They're, they will become extinct. They will become um you know, like against the law. So if golf doesn't evolve into these multi-use um, habitats with with native species that give back to the environment in some way, I don't think that they're going to be allowed. Um, so it's, I think it's vital. It's absolutely necessary. And, and we need to start doing the work now. Well, we needed to start doing the work <laughs> quite a while ago. In reality, these problems, and I know you spent a lot of time in the UK and Scotland and Ireland and England and did a lot of work there with Martin Hawtrey. I'll ask you about that relationship, how that came to be, because I think uh, you, you I think you've suggested he's a bit, been a bit of a mentor and, and really helped mm. you uh, make the decisions about this. The golf culture of those parts of the world is very different here, isn't it? Golf is much more part of communities. You don't see so many of these image problems in that part of the world what can we adopt from there and learn from the uk and i think probably scotland in particular that can help us golf sits on the outside of communities all too often how do we in integrate ourselves back into communities because it has so much to offer the game doesn't it yeah and that's the gap that we're wanting to fill of of integrating golf into the community and that's how we get non-golfers excited about golf and we have this misconception in North America that public golf is bad and private golf is good in terms of the, you know, what, what the golf course can offer. And, and, and yeah, the, the most famous golf course in the world is a public golf course that closes on Sunday for everyone to use as a park. You know, we don't really have that here. We put up our fences and we charge our big bucks to have these exclusive properties um, for the rich and elite and white men and anyone else who's invited should be lucky to be so. Um, so I think we have a lot to learn from places in Scotland in particular and, and how, the, how the community is just such a part of the experience of the golf um, and how it's integrated and how one gives to the other and it's a reciprocal relationship. There's a geographic element to that too, isn't there? When we lose golf courses from urban areas, 
golf becomes even more a thing that happens over there. Getting off the train and paying your green fee in the subway station <laughs> absolutely puts golf in a community, doesn't it? It does. Even, it's the center of the com- of the yeah. community. It's a meeting point. It's a place where people meet people um, and have and have social engagements and step out of their comfort zone and are exposed to the things that aren't themselves and the other and and learn new things. And that's that's you know that's what life's about. That's what we want. That's why we're here. Yeah, of course, the other thing we do in golf is that only golfers go to golf courses. I mean, almost never do you wander into the clubhouse at your club and see a bunch of people who aren't there for the purpose of golf, which is just madness. We create these enclaves. And I think deep down, Christine, one of the biggest problems we've got in golf is that golfers actually like it that way. Those Mm -hmm. who are playing the game now play it because they've come into that environment and found it to their liking and they don't want it to change. And that's understandable, I guess. That's that's what's appealed to you, and that's why you're there. I think we see a bigger picture where there kind of needs to be some change if people are going to get to enjoy golf in the future. But I think that's, I think golfers in some ways are our biggest problem. Mm. What, what, how about the first thing most people are asked if they do wander into a, a private <laughs> golf course? They're not asked, you know, can I help you? Or something. They're asked, are, are you a you member? A member? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that yeah, there's a golf course here in Sydney. Craig Parry used to live near. And I was playing there one day with a couple of my two members, Concord Golf Club, lovely golf course that Tom Doak's done some work on recently and uh, really improved. And Craig Parry lived nearby and he was two weeks removed from finishing just one shot out of the playoff at Canoostie in 99. And he was on the practice putting green. And I was sitting in the clubhouse with my friend. We'd finished playing. We were having something to drink. And two members at a table nearby, elderly chaps, one looked out the window and said to the other, I don't think he's a member. (laughs) He is, of course. (laughs) I think think he actually is. But, yeah, that was the, oh, I don't think he's a member, which is uh, just staggering. You said before you're optimistic, uh, Christian. Have we managed to knock that out of you today? Have we finally cured you of that? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty blue, actually. <laughs> hey, I thought you are in the midst of like a week of celebrations from Mackenzie Hughes and Corey Connors. Great performance in, oh, what a in the Open. Canadian golf, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's thrilling. <laughs> Surely it can't be long before you get another major winner from Canada, you would think. That Corey Connors, his game is built for the modern you can see him contending in U.S. Opens for the next ten years. I would think he just. Oh, he is so capable. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, fantastic. Can't putt though, Kenny. He? He, he can't putt. Can't putt. Coming from you. What, grip, <laughs> what number grip are you on now? Didn't you learn your lesson from Lee Westwood? <laughs> Didn't he smack you down on Twitter when you when you raised something not dissimilar about that? What is the role of professional golf, Christine? and professional golfers in all of this. Golf is so complex because it's like a hairball. You pull on one hair over here and it has an unintended consequence over there that you hadn't thought of. Professional golf is, of course, how most non-golfers experience golf. The little experience Mm -hmm. they have of it is seeing it on TV or somebody in Canada's done something and they get on the news. Mike Weir would have been all over the news when he won the Masters, I'm sure. Um, What role does professional golf, professional tour golf have to play? Yeah, I think it's um, they have a responsibility to promote uh, sustainable, equitable types of golf that isn't just big Augusta stages. Um, and and I think that's a big ask because as we talked to before, you know, if, if you're not experiencing it, then then why change things? And I think the 
the professional golfers at the top have it pretty good. I mean, they're giving away $40 million endorsements for people who are attracting the biggest social media accounts. And, and to me, that's, that's, you know, wasted money. Um, I think the role of the consumer is also very important, not just to look at how, you know, putting all of the pressure on the governing bodies or the, or the professionals to do the work. I think we as consumers need to do the work as well and do the research and look to where we're spending our money and how we're spending our money and the types of companies we're buying from. Um, uh, it's it's going to be, it's a job for everyone who cares about golf going forward. Ask not what golf can do for you, but what you can do for golf. Sounds corny, but there's some truth in that, isn't there? I, I agree with you on that. And people never think about that, but their own purchasing decisions set the agenda for what the game looks like and how it plays. For every person mm. who supports rollback and buys a new driver, there's an incongruity there that you need to think about uh, in that sense. Of course, the disappointing thing, Christine, is that the charter of professional golf organisations is not any of that. It is how do we make the game more profitable for our members and whatever that takes. And the the damage that that does in so many ways, which is not to say professional golf is bad, but the damage that that attitude does more broadly is where that's we see the, the fallout of that in municipal courses becoming under pressure. Um, yeah. you know, people think everybody that plays golf is Tiger Woods and has their own jet. The, these are the images that we sort of uh, we sort of promote. Uh, on to more happier um, topics. What what are you currently working on, and what's the future looking like for Christine Fraser Design Which I'll put a link in the show notes, and people should go and visit. There's some really interesting stuff on there, and you've written some interesting stuff. You've been a really interesting guest on a few podcasts, apart from this one. None of them as interesting as this one, obviously. But, <laughs> Uh, on some other podcasts. What are you working on? What can we expect from Christine Fraser Design in the coming weeks, months, and years? Uh, well, Jeff Jeff Minge and I just got a just landed a really exciting job in Montreal at Beaconsfield Golf Club. Um, uh, it, it's a it's a private golf club on the island of Montreal. Has a very big um, women membership contingency, so I feel like my role there is going to be really important. And they were really vocal and and having me come on board and kind of represent their their ideas and their expectations and how how the golf course changes will affect their game and their experience. So I think um, I'm really proud of the role that I'm going to play in this project. Um, yeah. So Montreal's on the list. I'd love to get back to the UK and do some more work with Martin when that's possible. Picked up the, picked up the golf clubs recently. So I'm a, uh, yeah, I'm a new yeah. golfer again. Yeah, fabulous. Uh, which brings up something I meant to ask you before. How easy or difficult is it to retrofit some of these concepts to existing facilities? Yeah, I think it's it's certainly it's certainly possible. You have to have the superintendent on board. You have to have the membership on board, and you have to have an architect that's willing to you know to, to take consider other perspectives and 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 do the focus groups and listen to what people have to say. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's not why you do it christine but a bit like meg mclaren she doesn't hold herself up as sort of the spokesperson or the beacon about gender inequity in golf yet that's kind of what she's becoming in a way just by doing what she does i think you're probably doing something similar it's been fabulous to have you on today it'd be nice if there were more women architects it would be lovely to get to a point in the game where you were just an architect 
I don't know whether you follow Wouldn't that. Wouldn't that be great, nice? Great yeah. Twitter account called Man Who Has It All. And there's some fabulous stuff in there. I don't know whether you follow it, Christine, but it's brilliant. There was one the other day. I was like, how do we encourage boys to know that one day they can grow up to be a boy boss or a boy, <laughs> or a boy doctor, you know, or, or a man CEO? It, it's so that's simple. Like they sell T-shirts, true. don't yeah. they? So they yeah. have like... Uh, male cyclist T-shirts. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Or think something like that. That was fabulous. My favorite. You know, it, sound, it sounds ridiculous when you say it, but you know, it's yeah. so well, relevant. But it gender labeling ridiculous. is just so ridiculous. Exactly. It, it doesn't sound ridiculous to those of us of this generation when we hear the opposite, and it should. That's what's uh, interesting. So yes, uh, in our uh, eyes, we, Christine. We, sorry, we went, Christine was looking for a um, a club cleaning brush or yes, something. Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. You could only find. Men's club cleaning brushes. What? Oh, oh, okay. So I had this really funny experience of um, just noticing when I was in. So Canada has a um, a store called Golf Town, and it's essentially the only retailer to get all of your golf needs in Canada. Um, and I'm sending I'm them looking, a bill for that. I'm sending them I a was, bill for the plug you just gave them. Uh, <laughs> please do. Uh, so I happened to notice that the Pro V ones that I was going to buy were labeled men's golf balls. I was like, well, <laughs> I'm going to buy them anyway, even though they're for men. But um, so then I kind of got into this rhythm of like, if these Pro Vs are labeled men's golf balls, what else is labeled for men? So I went around the store, um, uh, men's cleaning brush, men's tees, men's towel, uh, men's lock, uh, men's head cover, men's powder cover, you know, like across the board, everything... <laughs> Everything that I looked for, there was some part of that section that was labelled men. Actually labelled. Have you been able to clean your clubs yet? I haven't haven't found an appropriate brush yet. They're all for men. And and you've got women's clubs, no doubt, Christine, which are completely different to men's golf clubs. Yeah, I couldn't possibly use a men's brush on my women's clubs. No, God, no. You'd you'd do some sort of damage because, (laughs) you know, it wouldn't work. Um, That's quite depressing, isn't it, really? It's 2021. Did this happen this year or 100 years ago? This was like three weeks ago, Rod. Um, wow. Here's what bugs me about that in some ways. That cannot be a smart business decision. Golf Town is a business. Its, mm. it's entire reason for existing is to be as profitable as possible. That cannot be a smart business decision. Let's alienate half of the population and a significant, a not insignificant percentage of golfers by labelling it, something men's. It's a golf retailer too, so they should know better. Like it's, it's not. Li- it's like the literal only golf retailer in Canada. If you want yeah. golf products, you go there. Um, and you know, I can just imagine, you know, a new mm. a new golfer going into the store trying to get some gear. They're gonna, they're excited. They're gonna get their tees and their towel, and they're looking at the the labels on the product, and it's like a men's towel. Mm. Yeah, if you went to the sports section in Target, you might expect to see some of that because you know, who, what does Target care? They're they're probably not putting that sort of thought into it. Yeah, but a golf retailer, that's. Yeah, it's just just stupid. And look, in all honesty, it is a part of what puts particularly women off golf. My cousin some years ago at the age of 40-something developed an interest in golf almost out of nowhere. And her attempt to buy some golf clubs was just a horrific experience. The condescension and it was was almost little pats on the head. Oh, now you have this one. We'll come over to the women's section where everything's pink. Really? 
We're in the two thousands. This is you know ten yeah. years ago. Just truly, it's bizarre. a very consistent experience for me to walk into Golf Town and and ask for um, where are your balls, and they'll take me to the ladies section and point out the the pinkest balls they can find go- or golf balls. Are there separate <laughs> no. golf balls for women? No. There, is Nelly Cordy using a different Pro V one to for appropriate swing speeds? Yeah. But you know that the gender, the gendering of everything in golf is is just so ridiculous to me, and it happens all the time. Can you hear the eye rolling, Luke? People are rolling their eyes as they listen. No, the women banging on about it again. It's such simple stuff, Christine. Honestly, it really is such simple stuff. Everything we've talked about is really just such simple stuff, and yet you know the resistance you'll meet as soon as you raise it as an issue in this game. And it just it wears you down over time. A friend of ours and colleague of ours, Jimmy Emanuel, wrote a column. Oh, did that get published, Logue? Jimmy's column? It, I think it, it did. did. I read it yesterday. It's good. Talking about how as a golfer and loving the game, it's not hard to see how so many people hate it. You step back and look at it, mm-hmm. it's not difficult to see why so many people find the game so offensive. We, as an amorphous mass in golf, just give them so much ammunition. And what you've just outlined there might be the most depressing thing we discussed today. You wonder whether Golf Town might change their tune or whether people bother complaining. Yeah, so, that's it. Golf Town, yeah. Do better. Do better, Golf Town. Yeah, just be better. And we all love people who sell golf stuff. It's good for business, but just... Sell it sensibly. Good Lord. All right. You've um, motivated me for the rest of the day now, Christine. We thank you for that. And we thank you for taking some time to chat to us. It has been fabulous. Hopefully, it's not the last time we get to talk to you. Um, We might get you and Jeff on together at some point, Uh, maybe when Montreal opens. And you can tell us all about that so that our four Canadian listeners can be really enthused to go (laughs) and experience. But it's been great to chat to you today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you. I mean, golf has a lot of problems, and we've touched on them today. But these conversations are are going to be what makes golf better. Yeah, I think it. I think it's seeping through. What do you reckon, Luke? I actually do it, feel quite optimistic. I feel like a lot of this stuff yeah. is seeping through. Oh, for sure. I, I see people who contribute to the conversation who wouldn't have contributed before. Yeah. I think because they hear this sort of thing yeah. in podcasts or in golf media in general and I, I find that enormously encouraging yeah and not- for, for every one of those i think we actually lose listeners <laughs> when we do podcasts like this but that's sort of what tells me that it's an uh, important thing so. i reckon we've weeded them out now yeah i do i actually do i think true. we've now been around for long enough all of those who thought i'm not interested in listening to those lefty woke inner city shabbly sipping <laughs> commies anymore we've weeded all of them out and we've just been left with it but i think you're right like it's not a tidal wave but it's a it's a slow seep and i occasionally get direct messages from people on twitter saying we really really appreciate even if they're not part of the conversation just saying thank you for talking about this stuff and raising it and so it can feel like you're shouting into the wind sometimes christine but i don't think we are i think we're shouting into a well a slightly less less of a breeze (laughs) than we used to so we're making headway Logue, been great to have you along today as well thank you very much thanks rod thanks christine what episode was this 85. It's over. Come on. The next one will be 86, and that'll be at some point next week, and we're looking forward to your company then here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.